Welcome to the Martinskirk Podcast, a publication of sermons and lessons from Trinity Reformed Church of Martinsburg. Trinity Reformed exists to declare the victory of Jesus Christ through worship and practice to the ends of the earth. To learn more about our congregation, visit martinskirk.com. Now the sermon passage this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 9. So if you want to follow along in your Bibles, you're more than welcome to. Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. And in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wine on the lease, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lease. And he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven. May the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts this morning be pleasing to you, O Lord, our Rock and our Savior. We thank you for the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for allowing us to remember it, especially this morning. And I pray as we do, and we look through your word at the promise of your appearing on the last day, that our hearts will be filled with hope and faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. Through him we pray. Amen. Well, happy Resurrection Sunday. It's good to see all of you. In Resurrection Sunday, the Easter morning is the beginning of the Easter season. So we've made our way through Lent, and we are now in Easter. And Easter lasts for 50 days. It's 50 days of feasting and celebration. We've gone through 40 days in the wilderness of Lent through the remembrance of our Lord's Passion in Holy Week, and are now in the season of resurrection. So Lent was a time... A reflection on our sin. It was a time of reflecting on our weaknesses, on our frailty and our mortality. It was a, a time of reflecting on our dependence on Christ. It was a time of the cross. It was focused on our Lord's suffering and His passion. And Lent can often feel like a drag. It's supposed to. It's supposed to feel that way. You're supposed to feel like you're dying through the 40 days of Lent. And we are meant to go through those small deaths together. But after death is resurrection. And this season is not meant to be a season of introspection. It's not meant to be a season of pruning in your life. It's meant to be a season of feasting. Easter season is full of fellowship, laughter, food, wine, parties, pizza nights, candies, Saturday morning cartoons. Whatever Whatever you do in your household, it should be a time of festivity and thanksgiving. And the reason for this is because the resurrection of our Lord is the revelation of joy in the world. It is the revealing of who Christ truly is. Our Lord revealed himself as God and Savior through the offering of his body as a sacrifice to the Father and the defeat of of death by the Spirit raising him up on the third day. And in a sense, the cross of Christ was a feast prepared for Yahweh. The body and blood of our Lord Jesus. A feast for the sins of His people. 
And in being united to this sacrifice, to this sacred feast, the old man in us is put to death with him. And we are freed from sin. In the resurrection of Christ Jesus, we too are raised to life through faith. We are united to the living and life-giving feast in the body and blood of our Lord Jesus. And in this resurrected life, we see God as He truly is. And we participate in the glorious victory over sin and death. And one of the most perfect examples of this sort of theme of feasting in the Scriptures is the resurrection account in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 24. And I remember, I, I believe I preached on this last year, but on the road to Emmaus, Jesus is shrouding his identity and he meets up with two of his disciples traveling from Jerusalem. And he stops them, he, well, he walks with them, alongside them, and he draws near to them. But their eyes were veiled from understanding who Jesus was. And this was on purpose. And he asked them some probing questions along the way. Questions that challenged their belief in Christ's work on their behalf. And then he explains, starting with Moses, through all the scriptures and the prophets, who Jesus was, who he is to them. But even here, after he explains the scriptures to them, their eyes are still veiled. Their eyes are still veiled until they sat down with our Lord to break bread. And in the breaking of bread, they see Jesus and they see who he truly is. The Lord reveals himself in a feast. And we see this very same pattern in Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah is speaking of the return of Israel from exile and the glorious feasting that will take place in Zion once they return out from the thumb of Babylon. But he is also, and more truly, speaking of the final day of resurrection when our Lord Jesus returns. So there's a dual meaning here. There's a a feast that's a shadow of the true feast that he is speaking of. Jesus' resurrection was a foretaste of the world's resurrection. So in him, the whole world is resurrected as well. And in that day, the heavenly city of the new Zion, the new Jerusalem, will descend to meet earth. And in that city will be a marriage supper with the choicest meats, the choicest wines, the finest wines, the strongest wines, is what this is, this is actually conveying in Isaiah. The, the most rest that you could receive. The covering of spiritual blindness over all nations will be lifted, and we will see Jesus as he truly is. Death will be swallowed up forever. Our condemnation forever put away. And our soul's delight will be with us for eternity. And this is what the resurrection of our Lord really means. A whole world raised and glorified to see God face to face. And we have waited for this day and it has already come. And yet it will come again in Christ. So in verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 25, Isaiah tells us that this mountain, he's talking about Jerusalem, he's talking about the Temple Mount, this mountain will become a banquet hall for all people. Again, the mountain spoken of is Mount Zion in Jerusalem, the place where Yahweh dwelled in the midst of Israel. And we learned during the Lenten season that this temple was a shadow of the true temple, our Lord's body, the body of our Lord Jesus. And after our Lord's ascension into the heavenly places, this temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed just as our Lord was killed. 
and a new Jerusalem, a new temple, would take its place. And that temple is the Christian church, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ on earth. And Isaiah is showing us that in the last day, a feast will be set up in the midst of the people of God, of the church of God. A feast of the church made of all the choicest meat, of all the finest wine. And this feast is describing the marriage supper of the Lamb at the end of history. Now Israel at this time, again, is under the thumb of the empire of Babylon. They're in exile. And God is promising his people that he will deliver them from the hands of Babylon and set up a feast for them. And whenever Israel is actually trapped in some sort of slavery or bondage or exile in the scriptures, the promise is always a feast. If you think about the Exodus, what is, what is God telling Moses to tell Pharaoh? That we want to feast with our Lord in the wilderness. It was to bring them out of slavery into a feast on his holy mountain. In Revelation 19, after the destruction of Babylon is listed in Revelation 18... And Babylon here is being used as a pejorative term for unfaithful Israel at the time, or Jerusalem at the time. Our Lord sets up a feast for his people. And when all unfaithfulness is put under the the feet of King Jesus, he will set up a table for his bride. Now, if anyone's been to a wedding recently, or to a wedding ceremony, you're all familiar with the reception at the end of a wedding. And those times are dedicated to not lamenting about all the mistakes that you've made or all the sins you've committed. That's a time to reflect on the rest and joy and peace and hope that a marriage brings. The bride and bridegroom are now joined together in holy matrimony and can enjoy their blessed union around a table. There is peace at a marriage table. There should be, at least. And after purchasing a bride on the cross... Our Lord Jesus was raised to drink the cup and break bread with his new wife in his kingdom. That is what is being, that is what is being foretold here by Isaiah. And we see this throughout the book of Acts. What does the church do after our Lord's ascension into the heavenly places? The church, after the resurrection, feasts. They break bread together from house to house. They devote themselves to prayer. They're remembering our Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper is a taste of that final marriage feast. Every Lord's Day is a participation in the final day of our Lord when he puts all enemies under his feet. And we sit and feast with him in a new heaven and in a new earth. We have the choicest pieces. We have the choicest meat, our Lord's body. We have the strongest and clearest wine. The blood of our Lord. And in this feast, our Savior reveals himself to us. There's no longer a veil over our eyes. We no longer look through a glass dimly. We see Christ. And Isaiah says that on this mountain, the covering, the veil cast over all nations will be destroyed. And this veil has a twofold meaning. When you think about a veil, it has a twofold meaning. First, it speaks of the veil of the temple. This would have been temple language for Israel. They would have known exactly what Isaiah is talking about. It's speaking of the temple, the veil in the temple that separates God's presence from his people. And second, it is a veil of spiritual blindness, has a spiritual dimension to this. It's a veil of spiritual blindness over all nations, over all peoples. And that is destroyed 
in the revelation of our Lord Jesus. Now, if you'll remember what happened after Jesus' death, this kind of all comes together, right? When Jesus dies on the cross, what happens to the temple veil? It rips in two. The death of Christ destroyed the divide between God and the world. So now, in Christ's death, we are united to Him, and in faith we are raised up to walk in newness of life. And this newness of life is life united to the living God. No longer separated from God, but partakers of the divine life in Himself. There is no divide between God and man in our mediator, Jesus Christ. So in the resurrection of Christ, Jesus is revealed to His disciples as the Son of God. And there is no longer any confusion about who He is. In His resurrection, the veil over their eyes, over the eyes of the apostles and the disciples, is lifted. They see who he truly is. And the same was said of Paul, as we read in our our passage here in 1 Corinthians 15. The same was said of Paul, who met Christ on that famous road to Damascus. He was blinded, and only in the scales falling from his eyes did he truly see Jesus for who he was. His spiritual veil was lifted. And now it's easy to to see this comparison with a wedding ceremony. You don't see veils very often in modern weddings, but they used to be a common tradition. And it was a common tradition for this particular purpose. A bride sees dimly through a veil as she approaches her bridegroom. And when they are married, the veil is lifted and she sees her bridegroom as he truly is. This is what the resurrection does. And at the end of all things, when the dead are raised and the world is judged, all nations will see who Jesus is. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. He is King of kings and there will be no dispute. There will be no claim against Christ when all that dust is settled. We will see who God is through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in Jesus' resurrection, death is also swallowed up. It swallowed up in him. He descended into death on what's commonly called Holy Saturday, which was yesterday. He descended into death, but death could not keep him. The Spirit raised him up. He raised him up on the third day. And in his resurrection, we get a foretaste of that final day when all death will cease. And Isaiah says that the Lord, will, the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And we think of the book of Revelation. This is mentioned twice in the book of Revelation. John mentions Isaiah in Revelation chapter 7, verse 17, I believe. And in Revelation 21, 4, he mentions this particular verse. In Revelation 21, he says, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Amen. So the old man is dead. The old man is dead. Sin is dead. Death is dead in Christ. The former things of sin and death have passed away. Behold, he makes all things new. Our Lord doesn't just comfort us in our affliction. He doesn't just wipe the tears from our eyes. He gets rid of the root of our suffering and pain. He gets rid of the actual source. He doesn't just wipe away tears and give us a comforting word and say everything's going to be okay. He takes pain away and removes death entirely. 
In that last day, all things will be made new. But not just pain and not just sorrow either. Isaiah says that he will remove the rebuke of his people. The rebuke of his people. And this is talking about, first, firstly, the shame of God's people for their exile. When you're, when you're dragged into exile, it's kind of disgraceful. You know? You've been conquered. You've been put under another king. You've been made low. They are disgraced among the nations. They're a laughingstock, the Psalms say. And the Lord promises that this shame and disgrace will be done away with on the last day. They will be exalted among all nations, lifted up above the world. But it also points to our condemnation before God being done away with. And we can see this in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 says, he, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So the resurrection vindicates the saints of God. The resurrection vindicates us in the eyes of the world. So does the world mock us? Does your worldly neighbor condemn you? Does he call you a hypocrite because you screw up one day? Does he mock you? Let him. Let him. It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen He removes our disgrace and shame. Our sins are crucified in Him. That final day will be our our resurrection and vindication before the nations. So ultimately, the resurrection of Christ means resurrection to communion with God. When all your shame is done away with, when all your pain and sorrow is gone, you are brought into the life of God. So there's reason why Jesus stayed for 40 days after his resurrection. And he stayed with his disciples. He broke bread with them. He ate breakfast with Peter. He ate with the apostles in Mark chapter 16 before his ascension. He feasts with his people. He communes with them. The resurrection of Jesus brings humanity into that newness of life. It brings humanity into the presence of God. And when you're brought into the presence of God, you eat. You feast with him at his table. He speaks to you. He corrects you. He speaks words of comfort to you. You speak to him in prayers and praise and thanksgiving. And he invites you to dinner. This is what it means to be made right with God, to be raised to newness of life. He brings you into fellowship with him. Resurrection means communion. But this communion with God is not an individual event. It's not, it's not just you and Jesus, right? Resurrection is done in communion with others as well. After Christ's resurrection, he met with lots of people. Lots of people. Communion with God is done with one another. It's not just an individual experience. And communion with God is communion with those who belong to him. To commune with the head of the church, you commune with his body as well. When we pass the bread and we pass the wine this morning, we are going to be passing it to one another. We are going to be eating along with each other, waiting on one another. We commune with each other and with our Lord. To commune with God is to commune with his whole church. This is why 
in 1 Corinthians 11, divisions in the church is such a big deal. If you hate Christ's bride, you hate him. If you hate Christ's bride, you hate him. And this is why Isaiah uses terms like we. It's not a personal resurrection that he's speaking of, but a corporate. He says, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So when we commune with God, we commune with those united to him. And we are to do so joyfully. We are to rejoice with one another. When we have been raised with Christ to this new life in the church, we are to be glad. We are to rejoice. We are to feast and to celebrate. In the worship of God's people on Sunday morning, on the Lord's Day, the Lord's Day of Resurrection, our worship should be joyful. We should long for Sundays. Our hearts should burn within us. Our hearts should burn for, and long for those, uh, those whom the Lord has called to himself, to meet with God in his holy temple, to be around God's people. We should long to see our Savior in his people and in his holy word and sacraments. We've waited for him. We have waited for him, and he meets us here through his word and by his spirit. But we've not only waited for him, we are waiting for him. And he meets us here in his word and in the spirit, but he also promises through the remembrance of his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension that he will come again on the last day. And this is worthy of celebration. And our Lord demands that we celebrate. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And his mercies endure forever. It is a command. We are commanded that we sit down at his marriage supper and commune with him. To share in his joy. He demands that we share in his joy. He demands that he wipe away every tear from our eyes. He demands to love us and care for us. So we have this table of celebration, this feast of all feasts. Right in front of us this morning. A table with the choicest meat. A table with the best wine. In this simple bread, in this communion wine, this common wine, we are given the body and blood of our Lord Jesus. We are given the the Passover lamb without spot or blemish. So at this table, he offers himself to all those who call upon him in truth. To all those who have received Christ's resurrection life. This is not the bread of life without our Lord's resurrection. This is not the cup of peace apart from our Lord's resurrection. The resurrection secures our communion with God and with one another. Through our Lord Jesus, through our Lord Jesus, we have communion with our Father in heaven. And though our Lord Jesus is in the heavenly places, he gives us a feast to bring us to him and him to us. And he does this by his spirit through his word. And the worship of God's people, where the word of Christ is preached and the bread and wine is served, Zion, heavenly Zion, comes to earth. And our future resurrection, when all things are made new, is seen and is tasted by faith. So the pain and the sorrow that we experience in this life, that every one of us has experienced and may continue to experience, 
points us to the final resurrection hope. That's why Lent leads up to Easter. Christ's suffering leads to resurrection, to glory. Tribulation and exile are work. It's labor. It's hard. It's difficult. But resurrection is rest from that work. And in our Lord's infinite mercy, he has invited us to rest in that labor each and every week. To taste of the heavenly gifts. To participate in his Sabbath. So through his his joyful Paschal feast, our eyes are opened to the grace and nature of God. To his mercy and love for us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And this is the hope that we should embody this Easter season. Let's embody the joy and the hope of that final great feast at the end of all things. When our Lord Jesus comes again in glory and majesty to put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy being death. When he wipes away every tear from our eyes. And he brings the heavenly city to earth with joy and feasting, world without end. We need to see this heavenly vision every Lord's day. We need to see that resurrected life of Christ available to us through faith, by his spirit, every week. We need to long for the communion that we now have with God and with one another through our Lord. Our hope is in the resurrection. The whole Christian faith culminates in the risen and ascended Christ. So we've kept the fast. We've kept it for 40 days. We have gone through the wilderness. But the purpose of all of that, the purpose of that journey through that wilderness, was to feast on his holy mountain in the presence of God and his people, united to the risen bridegroom. That is the purpose. When we have that heavenly vision, when our eyes are open to the resurrected Christ. All the sorrows of this world are eclipsed by his mercy and his grace. So let us feast with joy in the house of God. For our Lord is risen indeed. Hallelujah. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.